Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. My guest today is Shira Lazar. She is the host and executive producer of the weekly live interactive show and 24-7 news hub, What's Trending. She's also the host and creator of the talk show on YouTube, Partners Project. Uh, She was named one of the most influential women in technology uh, by Fast Company and um, uh, Huffington Post's uh, Women in Tech to Follow on Twitter. Shira, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Give us, if you would, a little once-over on your background and, uh, you know, how, how you got in. What, what a nice girl like you is doing in a place like this. A nice Jewish-Canadian girl like me. Um, well, I studied communications at Emerson College in Boston, and I just happened to come up at a time where, you know, the option to go to a local news station was definitely there, but there were other options. And, you know, five, six years ago was when people were starting websites, looking for more video content online, and I came in at that point. And I started working for sites ranging from, you know, Yahoo to Hollywood.com to Verizon Vcast doing videos for mobile. And then in L.A. came up at a time when, you know, tech mixers were just starting as well. And so I started emceeing those mixers and grew into this convergence of entertainment and tech, which we're seeing completely blossom right now. And I've hosted video content um, for everyone and blogs for a while at cbsnews.com. I also hosted the live streams for Grammys and Oscars the past two years. And now uh, that all has all culminated to having this uh, live weekly show, It's Trending. So talk to us a little bit about how you sort of arrived with the success that you've had, because a lot of our listeners also have blogs, they also have podcasts, and it seems as though it was your success in mainstream media that allowed you to sort of build your presence in social media or new media. Is that correct? And, and do you think that sort of, you know, mainstream media is still a fantastic springboard to get a jump in the social media world? Yeah, definitely. I think I've always taken advantage of all types of media to get the word out. I always say, don't put your all your eggs in one basket. It's not just about you know social media or online versus TV or radio or print. It's like use as many of those mediums to get the word out. And it just so happens that social media has allowed me to amplify what I love doing. And I really care and am passionate about the online community. Um, but then I found a way to tell those stories definitely on more mainstream media. I was hosting a show on NBC for uh, a bit called LXTV First Look at Open House LA, and that started as a website. So it was amazing to see that transition. And definitely having worked with um, CBSnews.com, you know, it was that gap between we were online, but we were part of, you know, a bigger network or mainstream play. And, And so I always say, you know, it's not about one or the other, but how can you take advantage of both sides to really advance the conversation. And I do think that's possible. It's not an either or type of thing, but you you need to know how to make that information and those stories accessible to a mainstream audience. Listen, if you're you're into being part of a niche, that is totally valid. How many people in that space have quit? 
he knows who his audience is and he's taken advantage of that and he's used it to his benefit and he's making a ton of money off of it. Uh, from my perspective, I try to kind of bridge that gap between that niche audience and a more mainstream audience. That's what I've found success in. And that's what I'm passionate about is making the things that I love that might be somewhat geeky or, you know, nerdy sometimes or techie, making it understandable to people. And and when you see people get why those things are important, I think that's very powerful. Now, um, originally when you started, you were working for other organizations and now you're on your own, right? I've always really been on my own. I've never really had a full-time gig somewhere. I, I think some people think I have, but I've always had my, my foot contracted maybe with uh, a larger organization, but I've always been an independent contractor. Uh, and I think if anything, that shows what's possible today. You don't need to necessarily get that you know, full-time position doing something, whether it, it be blogging or vlogging or hosting or um, anything else you want to do. Uh, there are the tools right now to create that portfolio, make it happen, build your audience. And then in the end, if you have a community, that will be valuable to anyone. Now, um, your programs are advertising supported, yes? Sorry, you were cutting out. So your, your programs are advertising supported, and that's correct, right? They're advertising supported? Wait, wait, sorry, you were just kind of like, what was advertising supported? Your programs? Oh, yeah. So we've worked uh, multiple different ways. Uh, yeah, many times it is ad supported. We've worked with a ton of brands ranging from AT&T to Chevy to, you know, I would host video content for Internet Week New York and Webby Awards for Pepsi. So definitely, um, you know, we're we specialize in kind of bringing brands and portals and distributors together to create uh, really authentic content for the community that is really hyper relevant and makes sense and gets socialized and is, is fun to be part of. Now you've been doing this for a while. Talk mm -hmm. to us a little bit about how the pitch to advertisers has changed over the last few years. Well, I think that advertisers realize the value in social media more and building community. I think it definitely, it's still difficult because the divisions are siloed. So when you're working for a company, um, it's hard to think of a 360 model because there's, you know, an ad sales team on TV, there's an ad sales team on mobile, there's an ad sales team on online. And so it's hard to bring that story together when everyone's looking out. And so right now, you know, the future I see is where you do like a bundle ad deal and a company does that. And then you say, okay, well, where is that story best told? Let's put a bit of that money in TV. Let's put a bit of that money online or maybe 80% online, but we could use some TV attention too, or some radio attention, or maybe a hit in a magazine, who knows? Um, and so that's where I see the future. And I think that conversation is still definitely difficult, but people are getting what it means to be influential. You don't need to be a traditional celebrity and what it means to have a direct, direct access to an audience, whether it be through Twitter or YouTube or um, Google plus or Facebook. And they're getting what the importance of being part of those conversations in a real way. Let's talk about that for a minute. Um, because certainly uh, if you look at the New York times annual report, 
uh, there's a line item on the balance sheet that gives you a value of their audience. Uh, but the, the means by which audiences are valued in mainstream media are established, but in social media, not necessarily so. Yeah. So sort of back us into, I guess, the rationale behind uh, communicating the ROI of your audience to an advertiser. Yeah, that is hard. I mean, we've dealt with some brands where, you know, we're doing social media strategy for them leading up to a campaign and then I'm hosting a video for them at the event, like a media buy still, where you still see value in what you're doing in the community you're bringing together. But the fact is they feel comfortable with the media buy and with knowing that there are numbers and whether those numbers are, you could say, truly engaged or not, that's still something that need that conversation needs to happen. And, you know, Sometimes the ROI could be everything from retweets to the quality of the people engaging in the conversation to click-throughs. It really depends on the company you're working with. But I, I think we're trying to figure out what that all means in social media. There are companies and platforms like Clout that have come up, like Cred, that I think are trying to make that more understandable to brands. The value of that, you know, numbers uh, in terms of online influence of people and brands and trying to create that established score that we see, you know, Comscore has or Nielsen with TV. And, you know, Nielsen and Comscore are trying to make their mark with online video. They've created reports recently with Facebook, with YouTube, showing the power of the numbers there. And I think now that those players have gone in the game, that will really help advertisers recognize the power of those platforms the fact that being on Facebook, you know, is like a rating system. How many, how many engaged subscribers you have now there, or the people that are clicking through to your page? It's not just for viral pets and babies, but people that have legitimate channels that are getting bigger numbers than cable networks. Sure, if a brand wants to hire you to do some sort of a live stream from a media event, that let's say the Grammy Awards or yeah. the Academy Awards. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Well, for, in those instances, it's actually the Recording Academy that's hiring me, and they're dealing with the advertisers on all those conversations on their end. I'm not having to deal with that. And with the Oscars also, it was ABC.com. It's their digital division. So they're having those conversations, and, and the fact is there are numbers that can be promised, but ultimately it's also the brand recognition and connection. So you being part of the Oscars is something that's meaningful to a brand. Or being part of the Grammys, um, it goes the same way. Um, with the Oscars, it was really interesting because they actually had an iPad app that was $4.99, $4.99, to be part of that second screen experience. And you talk, I... You talk about four ninety nine like it's so much money. It was because I, I still think we're all trying to figure out how you market video content online and make people pay for it because we're just used to getting things for free. And I mean, there are the subscription models, obviously, with Hulu and Netflix and everything and Amazon. But in terms of an actual live show like that or Justin TV and getting it for free or Facebook Live. And so I was kind of surprised being like, okay, who would pay for that when we're just used to go going on a live stream for an event? It's sponsored. That's how they're making their money. But 
surprisingly and fortunately, they actually proved the model and the sales were amazing for that. They actually, people bought it and it, they made a ton of money off of that 499 app and they proved that that can be done when you provide something valuable for an audience that's definitely craving more they will pay for that. And I think that proves that that model can be done. I mean, we see it for, I think, maybe sports or MMA or fighting. People will pay for pay-per-view or for specials. And I think we'll see that much more from possibly concerts or entertainment. So, you know, when we look at um, what television did to print media or what radio originally did to print media and then what television did to radio. Um, And now we look at uh, what's happening online in terms of coverage of social media, Mashable being, you know, the the big outlet. Um, But clearly it's text and it's easy to scan. And, you know, the challenge obviously with video content is it's linear and you start at the beginning Mm -hmm. and you have to really commit some time, you know, to get the stream going and get it playing. And you've got to stick around long enough to get some information. Um, you know, it can be more of a challenge to find an audience. Uh, what words of, of wisdom can you give us about connecting with an audience on video versus connecting with an audience in print? Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think we all try to figure out because the fact is with print or with the written word online specifically, you know, when you search it, it's more searchable, SEO driven and all that stuff. And how do you create that attachment and stickiness to video? And for us, you know, when we launched the show, we launched the blog a month before, and that was really important. I think the problem is with a lot of online or web shows or original series online is that they air and then they're done for a week and there's nothing that's sticky for the audience in between. And so for us, it's about creating an ecosystem and a hub where you have this broadcast play at at its foundation in the center of it, but around it, you keep people engaged with other, uh, other content that's similar throughout the week, throughout the day. So it becomes a destination And the fact is, I do think um, it's a mixture between, you know, short form and long form. For us, we found a really interesting balance. I think we've actually proved that long form is possible. Like we see long form with podcasts. So why can't you create, you know, use video long form? And I think it's that balance, that secret balance between, you know, being informed and bringing people on that are influencers that have, you know, people following them in the digital realm. There's an interesting, you know, thing to be said about people that are influential offline versus online. There's some people that you could bump into and you could say, oh, my God, that person is amazing. But you could put them online in an interview and they might not get any views. So for us, it's about finding that combination of you know the bloggers the twitter people the google plus people the youtubers the celebrities and putting them all together in this you know in this live stream to talk and create a conversation and that's why we like to call it a talk show for the digital age um then it's also about taking stories that are relevant that are are maybe being talked about and for us going to the source of those things so you're not just like reporting on it but you're actually creating more conversation around it 
Shira, you did a show about uh, Steve Jobs, uh, sort of a um, a memorial show about Steve Jobs, um, and your 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 program is streaming. It's also available on demand. Yeah. So the question is, you know, that's that's news content for which there is not necess- not necessarily a shelf life. Um, so it seems kind of risky. To make news content, you really only got one crack at an audience. Sure, it's on demand, but who's going to go back and watch a news show? I mean, there's no classic CNN channel for a reason, right? So, I mean, it really seems like, you know, that strategy of going after news programming where you really need to tap that audience while the news is ripe is certainly a great way to be in touch with an audience in real time. But it also seems like it's a lot tougher to build a library that you could leverage over time. No? Um, I think that, well, I mean, like, look at any sort of programming that we all follow, we, we become loyal to. I mean, look at Leo Laporte, look at, um, so there's a ton of personalities out there that have created programming that it could be timely, but yet we're dealing with issues that are still part of a broader conversation that is constantly evolving. And so the stuff we cover, you know, isn't just necessarily breaking that day. We look at subjects that are the new water cooler topics. And so while things might have broken in the past few days near the time that we talk about it, they're part of bigger issues that society is kind of approaching it like in the time, you know, not just in the the day that we're talking about it, but overall over time. And so we'll talk about everything from, you know, fall TV and social media. And like, those are, those are blogs that you might see on Mashable that you would share. They're not just good for that day, but it's an overall conversation that we're having in media of that intersection, what that means when we're talking about a revolution, like in Syria or Occupy Wall Street. Yes, it's time to that day. We're talking about what this means a broader discussion so i think it's it depends on how you decide to approach that content and the people that we have talking about it are the people that you're following online who are talking about it so to be able to see those people in person sharing their thoughts on it is valuable to us these discussions need to be had they're not just stories that necessarily we need to just see a 140 character tweet about but there are things that people are talking at their dinner tables about offline too, you know, at conferences and why not create an actual broadcast quality property around that. So let me go ahead and break the, uh, and by the way, by the way, the Steve jobs live stream was one of our top watch live streams right under Snoop Dogg beyond even the ones we had when we were on CBS. Can so you, can you talk about the numbers or, or is that something you can talk um, about? I mean, I'll, I'll just say overall, our numbers are up. Okay. Our numbers are our video numbers, our live streams are up since we left. So let's go at it and let's talk tech here for a minute, okay? Google Plus, do they have a chance at actually mounting a significant competition to Facebook? I think that's hard. I can't see my mom or dad on Google Plus. I just think the interface right now isn't very mainstream user friendly it's more early adopter crowd i mean the engagement i think is great i was on one of the recommended user lists and i have now google plus subscribers followers um but some of the people are following like the quality of people are just random people i don't know so i don't feel like that uh, that connection 
it's like a great place to put out content, to create conversation, ask questions, but it's not like I feel like I could find my, you know, best friend from sixth grade there. So that emotional tie that ultimately allows for real growth that Facebook has seen, I just don't, it's not right there right now. I, I don't think it's going to get there anytime soon. So in last month's uh, Wired, uh, the product manager from Google's interviewed, it's a short little interview. Yeah. And in there, he suggests that uh, they're going to try to integrate television into Google Plus so that you could watch TV on Google Plus and hang out with your friends while you're watching. So let's say, for example, they actually wind up being able to get the same programming you get from Verizon, Fios, yeah. and, and, and Time Warner, and uh, you know all the cable guys, and they make it available on Google+, and they get a head start, say six months ahead of everyone else. Do you think that would be enough to make it a mainstream product? Yeah, definitely. You get entertainment on there that people are used to getting some, you know, on a TV or somewhere they're familiar, then definitely it familiarizes them to a new space that they didn't want. However, look what, or possibly in Amazon and all these apps, they, they're trying to make that social viewing experience happen. And so everyone will have to go through possibly Facebook to either get recommended something or not, or they end up watching it through there and socializing it with their friends. So I think that will be the competition. Whereas maybe the networks will do direct, you know, Time Warner will make direct relationships with Google Plus. I could see Facebook doing, you know, with the newer companies like Netflix and Amazon, all those, um, all those negotiations. And so the people that have already are cord cutters will just head over to Facebook instead of Google Plus. But do you think this is sort of the beginning of the end of cable as a delivery uh, channel for, um, for for television? I mean, does TV ultimately move online? I yeah, I think TV the you know TV versus online. It's just all a screen, and we're gonna just have to decide where we want to watch it. Do you want to watch it on our living room screen, on our bedroom screen, on our laptop screen, on our mobile screen? And so the future of content I see needing to be available. And everywhere. And I don't think it's necessarily, I think we'll call it a TV set, but it doesn't mean you'll be connected to a cable box. I, I definitely see that. I think we're a bit of the early adopter crowd. You know, at middle America, there's still a ton of people even using rabbit ears still. You know, but we sometimes have to realize it's like a, it's a slow process, but it's definitely starting. Okay, Facebook. Yeah, every time they make a change, everyone freaks out. Um, first of all, uh, do you think that the way they make the change perhaps could be done a different way so they didn't have the reaction that they have? Uh, do you think they're, you know, entitled to make the changes that they make? I mean, they're kind of leading the, leading the pack here, aren't they? Yeah, well, it's funny with Facebook because I feel like at every point users are satisfied and it's like, or maybe they're not satisfied because there's privacy issues and there's all that type of stuff being talked about. However, he always makes like a jump. Like, it's like almost like he's not satisfied. Like, oh, I need to switch things up. I need to raise the bar. He's obviously seeing something more. And while everyone gets pissy and groans and is annoyed, everyone just calms down and just accepts it, it seems. You know, have I, you played with Profile? Have you what? played with the new timeline on Profile? No, I really don't 
I mean, I haven't played. Like, the whole thing is, like, the timeline and then the other, like, there's too many things. I think at a certain point, it becomes, a, there's almost too much noise. I know they're trying to create different types of timelines so that it filters the noise and you can go to one for like everything going on and one for more specific things and the actions and all that. I just feel like that sometimes it doesn't oversimplify it. Let, let me ask you a question. Let's say, God forbid, but let's say your house caught on fire. Okay. And you only had five minutes to save something. What would you save? My house caught on fire. Your house well, caught on fire. All, all right. the things in your home. Say, what do you well, save? That's the thing. I guess I could see where you're heading, like timeline, save those things. Like, so I don't need to have pictures offline. If everything's on my, you know, in the cloud, then there's nothing to save. I just need my laptop, my phone and my cat and I'm good to go. You know, and maybe the clothes, some clothes. (laughs) How is that as a competitive move against Google Plus? Because if you already invested a couple years of memories or a few years of memories mm-hmm. in Facebook and now they've sort of that's replaced was, the scrapbook, I mean, isn't that a great competitive move? Well, that's the thing. That goes back to an emotional tie. They're creating stories, whereas Google Plus is just creating another platform to connect, you know, in their, in their, on, like in, on their turf. You know, where a lot of people are, I mean, there's so many people using Gmail, but ultimately I think what makes something really blow up in a big way beyond the tech crowd is when you connect it with emotionality. And that's, that's what Facebook is doing. They're creating something that's beyond using it just to, you know, say hi or stab, status update or to engage. They're actually trying to like build on your life and that's powerful. Sure. Final question on sort of tech news of the day. Uh, let's let's talk about search and let's talk about the future of search. I don't know if you've noticed, but I and I don't have any hard evidence on this, but it appears to me as though the quality of my Google search results are slipping. It appears to me as though the system of inbound links for deciding what pages have the most influence is. Ultimately, that war is being won by the spammers. And, and the question is, you know, if, if Google isn't successful with Google+, Plus, I mean, if they don't really achieve, you know, mass adoption, what does that mean for the future of search? It's, it's scary for them, definitely, because as we all know, we want to search results and, and find value through our friends now. And so that's much more powerful than just going to a database where we're, an algorithm is telling us what's right or wrong. We'd rather our friends tell us what's right or wrong and, and search through that. Also, someone like Eli Pariser, who wrote The Filter Bubble, has shown well shown this through Facebook, but then also through Google, that they're adjusting it based on you know advertising needs. And so the, the less we can trust these types of platforms, the less we're going to use them in the long run. And it all comes down to trust, and they need to rebuild that trust. And, and it's hard because it's so easy to game the system. It's so easy to write enough about something and just game that SEO and be on the top of the search results. And they need to figure out a way to um, distinguish between and haven't figured out yet. Uh, sure. Final final question of the interview, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, you know, there's been some news with your company in the, in the last yeah. couple of weeks, 
And I just, you know, I want to give you a chance to just tell everybody what happened, uh, you know, because if we skate over it, uh, well. I'm totally, listen, I talk, I'm like very transparent and honest tell, about tell everything. what happened. First, something no, what I mean, happened. Yeah, and we mentioned this, you know, on our first show back after this incident with Steve Jobs and CBS, we came out and we, one, wanted to apologize sincerely and deeply because it was something we didn't want people to think we were deflecting responsibility. What happened? What happened was is that we were in the CBS newsroom. Someone got a call from CBS radio and mentioned that Steve Jobs died. I was running into a meeting, told my managing editor, and told her to get on the story. And instead of her verifying it, she just tweeted it. And then afterwards, I'm in my meeting, and she comes in and says that um, she doesn't think there's a story there. She thinks it was just like a rumor that someone or someone just heard something just like in the newsroom. Listen, you hear many things, but doesn't mean you put it out to the public if it's not real. And so I go, Oh, if it's not, didn't happen, I don't see it online anywhere. Then this isn't a story like moving on just gossip. And she's like, well, I, so, but, but he did in fact pass away. And, then, so what happened? And, and so we retracted it. And a minute later, it was retracted in conjunction with, um, you know, CBS telling us what to do. And then we were told just to hang tight and chill out till Monday and, you know, kind of wait it through. And we didn't talk to anyone. And then Saturday morning, our blog was redirected and Hollywood Reporter gets a scoop that CBS is cutting ties with us. And that's how we found out. And then a few hours later, we were terminated. <laughs> how how much in advance of his actual you know, passing away was, did the tweet go out? Well, you know, he passed away last week and that happened September 10th. I see. Okay. So it was significantly in advance. I thought it was closer to around when it happened. No, I mean, the fact is there's no room or tolerance for, you know, whether you hear something, we all know journalistically or in any sort of process, you don't just overhear information. You know, our process with our company is, we either, if someone has an article about something, we retweet it, or if someone said something, we'll retweet it. But we never put something out there making news like that. That's just not what we do. So it's really still important. doing the show. So are you shopping it now with other broadcasters? Yeah, definitely. Well, the thing is, we've built such a community, and there's so much value in what we're doing. We're the only ones doing it. We're like the premium property on the web and the value and what we do and so we just we continued it and we continued to build the audience we continue to get amazing guests we have an incredible team and community and so yeah we're talking to a ton of people we are very fortunate you stream and live stream continue to be huge supporters and push us out there and there's a lot of news and then you know next coming weeks and the fact is a lot of um a lot of people want to work with us it's just a matter of us deciding what's the best fit well, it certainly is exciting to get a chance to catch up with you, Shira. So thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much, Eric. Watch What's Trending, whatstrending.com. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. 
On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.